everybody again this morning. So glad we can worship, uh, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. As you know, a few weeks ago, we started into this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And in it, he continues to teach us each week about our identity in Christ. And that's our identity both individually, but also as a church. And of course, here at Four Mile, we all know that our identity is in the fundamentals of our faith, which is why we always have our football up here. And there are, of course, three fundamentals that we see as sort of foundational. The first one, as you know, is that we want to be a church that's focused on the Great Commission. That means we don't want to be one of those churches that just meets on Sundays. We want to be about the business of the kingdom every single day of the week, which is why we have these pillars, and they're already starting to go. Many of you have signed up for them. I know there's a pillar that met this morning, um, and that's why our vision is to truly reach the tri-state region and beyond, making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Of course, you also know, as Tyler pointed out already, that we are a church with flaws. Um, in fact, we always say, we remind ourselves that it is okay to not be okay here. And that's so important. That's such a fundamental for us to focus on because it's really easy in church life to become self-righteous, to sit there in judgment on other people. And it's so important to remind ourselves week in and week out that we're all in process at some level or another. Of course, we don't want to celebrate the fact that we're all messed up. We kind of want to move beyond that, which is why we don't want to stay in that not okay place. And so we have that third fundamental which is we love you enough to tell you the truth. And it's great because when you think about what is truth, it's in the person, words, and works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that truth is all over Scripture. Doesn't matter where we look, we see Jesus. It always points us to Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul does to us. In fact, in this first half of his letter to the church in Ephesus, his focus is on Christian belief. And last week, we introduced this really powerful truth with the doctrine of election. And hopefully we've all wrestled a little bit this week because it does tend to shake us when we first confront it. It's one of those teachings where we have to resist the urge to interpret it through the lens of the world. Because the world's always going to force us to ask a question, how can this be? Why would God choose some and not others? That doesn't seem fair. And anytime you find yourself landing on an argument of fairness, you're in pretty weak grounds. Why is that? Because the terms of fairness are usually subjective, debatable, and they're easily manipulated to whatever our perspective is. And we can see this easily whenever a referee blows a whistle or tosses a flag at the end of a tight game. Our response to that call depends on who the referee's calling the team, which team he's calling the penalty against, and which team is ours. So you can see how subjective it really is. And then, of course, the object of fairness is also contentious. Fair to whom? Fair to the sinner. Fair to the saint. Fair to God. Fair to our neighbors. So whenever we toss out an objection in the name of fairness, we're typically just advocating for our own perspective. But the issue of election is a divine matter. So it's not relative to our perspective. It's an absolute truth from God. And we must never interpret truth through the lens of the world. We must interpret the world through the lens of God's truth. And even for those who accept the truth of election, which you really can't reject because it's all over Scripture, but even for those who accept the truth of election, there's been great debate over the centuries as to how and why God chose His people. So we have a great deal more to cover on this topic today. 
But before we do, I just want to quickly recap from last week. You recall Paul is writing this letter from a Roman jail, a place of certain suffering. At the very least, he's lost his freedom. But in it, he has this tremendous joy and thanksgiving because it's a letter of encouragement. And we see that encouragement both as he's writing to the church in Ephesus and also to us. And he's encouraging them because of this blessing. First, he's adoring God because of the blessing, and then he describes the blessing. And it's basically this, that we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. So let's read our text for today. And this is the same text we covered last week. The white part is what we covered last week. The orange part is what we're going to cover today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we'll walk through this text piece by piece like we typically do. Part one, we see, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now these first two words are so important, in love. And even that first word, in, it's a really small word, but it packs so much meaning in it. In fact, we're going to focus the next four sermons on this little tiny word, in, in the context of being in Christ. So I'm just going to touch on it for now. When something is in us, it is a part of us. It's a piece of our identity, which means it also shapes our behavior. Now, the object for in here is love. And as we've discussed before, the Bible describes a key component of love as an act of the will. It's a choice. You see, you can compel people to do all sorts of things. You can threaten them. You can incentivize them. But the one thing you can't do is make someone love you. It's their choice. It's an act of their will. And it's because God chose to love us first that he then predestined us. Remember, God is always the first mover. Before we go any further, we must be careful to differentiate this term predetermination from predestination. They're often confused. Predetermination is a view that's held where all outcomes have been determined ahead of time. It's as if God has planned everything to its fullness, minute detail, and everyone's on autopilot, and we're just kind of moving out. Now, the problem with that approach is that we wouldn't need to study for exams we have this week, would we? Because we'd already know the outcome. It's already been determined. And so that just kind of contradicts what we experience in life because we do make choices that affect outcomes. If we study for a test, we generally do a little bit better. And that's because God has granted us choice or free will. Why did he do that? Because he loves us and he's made us capable of loving him and each other. And in order to have love, we need this thing called free will or this thing called choice. Now, it's critical 
that we're clear about what we mean by this term free will, because we usually mess it up. Free will doesn't mean we can do anything that we want. I'm sure many of us down here would love to fly. In fact, if you'd like after church, you can run around the parking lot and do this and see if you can get off the ground. But trust me, just not going to make it, no matter how bad you want to fly. I'm sure there's many others of us who would love to see the price of gas drop. And no matter what we do, we're not going to be able to do that either because we're constrained by conditions. You see, we can choose to take the interstate or the back road to get home, but we can't just drive through someone's front yard. We can't go through a river if it's in front of us. We must stick to whatever roads are available to get home. We see this exact same truth with moral choices that we make. So free will is the ability to make choices given available options. God is the only one out there who is unconstrained. He is sovereign. He's in complete control, so much so that he can even grant us free will and still be in charge of absolutely everything. That's mind-blowing. It's a whole other sermon for us to get into down the road. But he is sovereign. He is complete control. So predetermination is not Paul's position here. It's predestination. Predestination means the ultimate destiny has been determined. Or more specifically, in Christian terms, predestination is the biblical doctrine that God in his sovereignty chooses to save certain people. The word literally means our ultimate destiny in eternity has been decided before the foundation of the world by God. So unlike predetermination in free will, where there's clearly a contradiction, there's no contradiction between predestination and free will because our destination is not based on our choices. In fact, we know what it's based on. Paul tells us it's based on God's love. That's why it starts out with these words, in love. You see, that's what unconditional love is all about. It's not based on our choices, our merit, or even our sins, which is actually good news for all of us because we're really not too good at making choices if we're honest with ourselves. There's very little merit in any of our lives and certainly none that would make us acceptable before God. And although we're pretty good at putting face paint on our lives to conceal all of our failures, in truth, our lives are riddled with sin. So what a relief that our predestination for heaven, our election, is based solely on God's love for us. That's why understanding this truth is huge, because even as Christians, our worldly tendency is to operate at two extremes. Either we begin to believe God will choose us because we're good enough to be accepted into heaven. That's sort of the self-righteous religious that we see out there. Or we believe that we must work hard each day to be good enough for God to accept us. Again, sort of a religious perspective on things. So I want you to check out this graphic. It depicts a worldly view of life in relation to God. This is a very commonly held belief. As we walk through this, it will feel very familiar to us. A long time ago, God created the heavens and the earth. Over the course of time, people have been born into the world. Some chose to believe in God, many simply because if there's an afterlife, they desire to go to the good one, heaven. So they do their very best to behave. 
They sin as little as possible. They do some good works whenever they can, try to make it to church, and they really focus on eliminating those four-letter cuss words, right? They say things like, dolly, golly, or darn it, right? It's really weird why people do that, but we just do it because we think we're like minimizing our sin. If all goes well, they live a mostly good life in their own eyes. And then like all people, they'll eventually die. And then they'll face God's judgment. And if they're good enough, they go to heaven. If not, they go to hell. And this is how much of the world views religion. It's a worldly perspective on how humans interact with God. And unfortunately, that's what far too many professing Christians also believe too. Even if they believe Christ's blood atones for their sins, there's such a temptation to add works to the equation. We begin to think, well, I do go to church. My neighbor doesn't. You start looking across the pew, and you think, well, I've cleaned up my act a little bit. They don't seem like they have, right? And so we start to think that we layer on some of our works as to, well, God clearly is going to accept me because I do all these good things. And you know why Christians fall prey to this line of thinking? It's because they don't have a strong command of the truth that's contained in their Bibles. You see, the Bible teaches something much different. It teaches that God is always the first mover, that God chose His people, the elect, before the foundation of the world, meaning before God even created it. Then as people are born into the world, God convicts His people of their sin. He calls them to a belief in His Son, and He promises to forgive the sins of His elect by virtue of Christ's atoning blood. He gives His chosen people the Holy Spirit, who convicts, counsels, and comforts them in their behavior so that they might respond in love and obedience to God by how they live out their life. You see, people don't do good things to get into heaven. It's because they're already chosen by God among the elect to go to heaven, that they respond by doing good things. And when they die, the elect, those who've been washed in Christ's blood, will be with God in heaven for all eternity. As I mentioned last week, sometimes we bristle with this teaching simply because of the words that are used in Scripture to describe it. Words like the chosen, the elect, they all smack of elitism and exclusivity, and that bothers us. And that's why I love the word that Paul uses here. He says adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Hopefully you'll agree that this word adoption does a wonderful job capturing what's really going on here. Because back in Paul's time, adoption was a huge deal. If someone adopted you, it was like hitting the lottery. Back then, most were servants, slaves, commoners, and they had few possessions, very little security, and minimal freedom. So if a wealthy family adopted you, you received access to the freedoms and privileges afforded every family member. Land, provisions, water, food, security, even full heirs to the family inheritance. So when Paul uses this word adoption, he doesn't do so lightly because it means God has adopted His chosen ones. They now receive full status as one of His children with all the freedoms, the privileges, the provision, the security, even heirs to the bountiful blessings of the kingdom of God. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, 
It's natural upon first hearing of election that it seems horribly unfair. But that's only if we don't have a proper Christian worldview on this topic rooted in the totality of Scripture. The truth from Scripture is that everyone is given the choice to obey God. That's that free will that we talked about. But unfortunately, everyone chooses sin. But because of God's love, He has chosen through Christ to save some, despite their rebellion and sin. And for the rest, God allows them to continue in their sinful ways that they desire and that they've freely chosen. So those who reject Christ do so freely. And those who accept Christ also do so freely. But their choice is a result of a new constraint, one where God has convicted them of their sin. Maybe think of it this way. There are two judges that only hear murder cases. The first judge is just in all that he does. If we're guilty of murder, this first judge always, always gives a death penalty sentence. In other words, we get what we deserve, justice. The second judge, he's just too, but he's also loving and gracious. Some get what they deserve, the death penalty, but others walk away with no condemnation, and that determination is made even before the judge hears the case. And the death penalty is still paid because there was a murder that happened, but it's paid by the judge's son instead. Why? Because the second judge is not only just, but he's also loving. He's gracious and abundant in mercy, just like we saw when we studied Psalm 51. So then you may ask, why doesn't this judge, who clearly represents God, why didn't he just save everyone? Well, we get the answer to that one in the second part of the text. It's because he does things according to the purpose of his will. And we saw this teaching all over the Sermon on the Mount last year. And we use this graphic up here to depict who God is and who we are. God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is sovereign, all-present, all-powerful, and all-knowing. And God is good. He's the very definition of love, perfectly holy, and the author of truth. Whatever God says, it happens. Objects accelerate to the earth at 9.8 meters per second squared because God said so. In other words, he is the potter and we are the clay, and he's free to do whatever he wills according to his purposes. And his will is that, out of love, he chooses to save some in Christ, the elect, those who place their faith in Jesus. That's just how he designed it. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. I like how J. Vernon McGee puts it. We've used this quote a couple times. I think it's one we should all try to memorize. He says, this is God's universe. God does things His way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And when we think through that particular quote, we should be reminded of this graphic up here. In fact, we've said it over and over again. Each day, at least once or twice, stop. Just look up. Remind yourself of who you are and who God is. And that, of course, begs the next obvious question. Am I among the elect? That's what everyone's waiting for. Am I truly one of his adopted children? Well, Paul gives us insight into that question, too, because he uses this word, us, in part one. 
in love, he predestined us. And if you remember from two weeks ago, this letter was written to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You'll recall we said saints are believers, those who are born again, baptized into a new life in Christ, meaning they've repented of their sin, they placed their faith in Jesus, and they contend earnestly for Him by taking up their crosses daily, following after Him in response to the Great Commission, going and making disciples. So if you're a saint, then God chose you to be one of His adopted children in Christ. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, those who freely choose God are those whom God has freely chosen. So when you look at that quote, you can see predestination and free will do not contradict each other at all. They easily coexist. They even complement each other. And we don't really find any examples in the Bible where people desire salvation. They've chosen God, but God actually rejects them. We just don't find that anywhere. We do find plenty of cases, however, where people desire to not go to hell or they desire to be seen as a righteous person but they also desire to remain in their sin. They're just too addicted to materialism to give it up. And this idea of sex outside of marriage, it's just far too appealing to them. Self-righteousness, that whole pride, it's just too hard to shed. You see, many people think they want to go to heaven, but if they're honest, they don't even really want to go to church each week. And when they do come, they just kind of look down at their shoes when we're singing, just kind of hoping this thing kind of moves along a little faster. Or they'd rather critique our style of music or the clothes that we wear up here, which doesn't work well for me most weeks. But most of all, they don't hate their sin. They're actually looking to get by with as much as they possibly can. You see, they haven't freely chosen God. Because when we freely choose God, we essentially hate our sin as much as God does. And we can't help but repent, turning from our sin, and then asking, seeking, and knocking for the Holy Spirit to help us live a life of repentance and forgiveness. So important, because our sinful nature, we're always going to get sideways with each other. We create distance when we sin, but when we repent and this person forgives, it restores that relationship. Reconciliation is so important. So if you hate your sin as much as God does, and God has convicted you to accept Jesus as your Savior. You trust in Him alone for your salvation. That Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the full payment for your sins. Then you are one of the elect. Why? Because in love, God chose you before the foundation of the world. And it's not because you did anything, felt anything, went and got yourself baptized, or even publicly professed a faith it's none of that. All of that is important. It's a very important part of the salvation experience. But none of it is the reason we are saved. No, it's simply because of God. Because in love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It's right here in Scripture. So it's truth. And God's truth cannot be broken. That's just how He designed it to work. And of course, if you believe the truth, your behavior will reflect it. You'll live in obedience out of love for God. And that's precisely why the order up there matters so much. It's incredibly important. Because 
just as your behavior, your works, they don't secure your adoption, your belief doesn't secure it either. Rather, the Bible says it's your adoption that secures your belief and your behavior in Christ. It's because in love, God chose you. And if you're chosen, you cannot resist his call. His conviction is so strong that you simply must repent. That's what makes us adopted children, chosen by God in Christ to be washed in his blood so that we might be holy and blameless before him, which should evoke deep within us a profound yet very simple response. As we see in the third part up here, our response is to praise his glorious grace with which he blessed us in Christ. What an awesome gift Jesus is to us. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. He bore the penalty for our sin, which is why we can't help but to respond by praising him with our lips, our actions, by how we treat others. Jesus is the only way that we are among God's chosen. It's through Christ in the beloved. Getting something that we didn't deserve. We deserved the death penalty, but Christ took it instead. The only response we can have to this truth is praise. Praise to his glorious grace. That's the focus, grace. We sang about that song. Unmerited favor, getting something we don't deserve. In fact, after church as you leave, there's going to be people on back and they're going to hand you a big cookie. None of you did anything this week to deserve that cookie. Trust me. But you're going to get it. Unmerited favor, this cookie. So even if you're allergic to it, just accept it. It's grace. <laughs> Give it to someone else. They'll appreciate your grace. You see, it's grace beyond reason that's paid for our freedom. That's what makes us alive in Jesus. That's what we saw back in Psalm 51 during Lent. We saw that dead men are the only ones who don't sing God's praises. And if we believe all this to be true, then we're born again. We are made alive, and we can't help but break out in praise. Creation sings God's praises. If the mountains bow in reverence, if the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. Lyrics that we sang last week, and we're going to sing again this week. Do you see how when we live under the truth of the doctrine of election, our response is a life of praise. We walk out of the courtroom of our lives, holy, blameless, righteous, free, all because of his glorious grace. That's why Paul is so joyful and grateful as he writes this letter from a Roman jail cell, because he's blessed by God, and so are we, because we've received God's unmerited favor, his bountiful spiritual blessings that he's lavished on us in the beloved, in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for loving your people so much that you chose us before the foundation of the world to be your adopted children by the sacrifice that your son made, standing in our place, suffering the penalty of our sin, making us holy and blameless. 
Holy Spirit, would you convict, counsel, and comfort us to embrace this truth in our lives. Help it shape our identity in Christ. It's for his sake we pray. Amen. So if you missed the past two weeks, we've been using our tombstones to help us clarify our identities. Hopefully we're all starting to see our identity come into clearer focus because when we place our faith in Christ, we know exactly where we came from. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we know where we're going when we die. We're going to spend eternity with the King in His kingdom. And we know why we're here to praise His glorious grace with all we've got. That's our response as adopted children. A servant of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that's our identity. And there's nothing that can ever happen that can take that away. So let's depart today, not giving a second thought to our efforts to work our way into heaven. Let's instead focus on our response to the truth that who the Son sets free is free and did. We are a child of God because that's who God says we are. So I invite you all to stand as we praise God in response to His love for us.